this episode, I'm talking to my friend Javier McKay, Mackey, sorry man, I'm I'm messing up your name again like I always do, but he was a Green Beret, he's retired now, Special Forces guy, he does some training and some of that kind of stuff here on the civilian side, but he's still working to try to get some people out of Afghanistan, people that meant a lot to him. So we talk about Afghanistan a lot in this. We talk about the withdrawal process, maybe what could have been done better, but mostly about what it's like to be in Afghanistan and what it's like to be a civilian, a retired guy, working to get your dudes out of a country after your government gave up on them. Yeah, it's crazy. Hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thank you. I'm here with Javier Mack. I already think I might have blew it. Is it okay to use your name? Yeah, that's cool. Man. I should have asked you that while we were talking before. <laughs> like, no, dude. I don't, I don't care, man. They, they they can Google search my name. There's nothing uh, classified or okay. I, I'm not involved in anything uh, too big. So. Okay, so I'm here with my buddy Javier Mackey, and uh, you know we wanted actually a bunch of people reached out and said you should have him on your show, and I was like, well, it's cool because we've been th- we've been talking about doing this for gosh, I don't know months at this point. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, well, this would be the perfect time. We've got this Afghanistan stuff going on, uh, drawdown, and I know that you're heavily involved. Well, you're involved in in parts of things with even the drawdown now, and. For for because no one know okay, a lot of listeners are not going to know who you are. Obviously, especially not the way I do or whatever. So, can you just give us like a a quick rundown of your military service and uh, you know your, your relationship to Afghanistan and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I was a uh, I I was a special forces soldier. I joined after uh, I went to selection after nine eleven. Um, completed the Q course. Uh, sometime after that, did my first deployment to uh, Jordan, which was like a FID mission, which is for uh, FID stands for Foreign Internal Defense. Basically, we go to um, another country, and while we're there, we basically train with their uh, special forces and um, and get some cross, you know, get some cross cross cultural understanding of who they are and what they represent in the world. Uh, after that, I had served in Afghanistan from 2006 to 2009 uh, or 2010 consecutive, like back-to-back deployments. And then I had a not not so much a break, but I served elsewhere in Central Asia for two years, and then I came back uh, back to Afghanistan 2013, 14, 15. After which I went to. Uh, I, I took a position at the University of Central Florida as a uh, instructor for uh, military science, teaching ROTC student uh, cadets, so they can become officers. So that's that. That's that's the the nutshell of it. Um, Afghanistan, you know, because I spent so much time in Afghanistan, out like a total of seven deployments. Um, we did a lot of uh, work with the Afghans. Uh, by with and through basically we we train them uh we after we train them we uh we took them out on uh, missions and 
they were the face of the mission. So whenever it was, uh, whenever we encountered locals in a village, it was the Afghan government, government's face on, on the engagement. And we were just there to facilitate and rep, you know, just, you know, kind of be the, I, I, the best thing to say, we were, we were there to represent the, the interests of the United States, uh, um, when it came to stabilizing and securing the government. <clears throat> yeah. And all those are special forces deployments, right? Right. Uh, every single one is, I, I've never did anything on the conventional side uh, outside of the United States. And so right now you, we were talking before we jumped on about, well, we were talking about a whole bunch of stuff, but um, you're talking about how you're, you're working with, you're trying to get folks out that were interpreters for you and some other like, dealing with the like the real human side of the drawdown stuff and i mean what i mean, you know i i don't want to be the the sports sideline reporter and be like well how does that feel you know but i mean like how is logistically how big like, like what does it feel like on this end and when i say feel what is it like working with i don't mean feel i mean what is it like working uh with people trying to get them out of afghanistan right now like people that matter like people that really matter so is like I can go back to like 2006, you know, my first deployment in Afghanistan and, you know, being kind of wet behind the ears and not really knowing what to expect. When I got on the ground, the locals there were very welcoming to having U.S. forces there. They were, you know, you know, people were working. People were uh, they didn't have to worry about these the the certain types of restrictions that are um, in place by Sharia law the and Afghanistan in my eyes was very, it was a very living, uh, entity in and of itself. It much, you know, regardless of, um, they didn't have everything that we had here in the United States, obviously, but they have what they were accustomed to and they were looking for forward to a better future, with the Americans being present, helping establish a new Afghan government. And we weren't there to colonize or, you know, I didn't feel like we were there to colonize. I kind of felt like we were there on a just cause of um, finding Osama bin Laden, ridden the people of, uh, ridden, you know, making it, uh, not making it a safe haven for Al-Qaeda terrorists. And so, with that, we forged some really strong relationships. And um, the relationships we formed was primarily um, through our interpreters because our interpreters were, they were our voice to the Afghan people. And they were our, they were the means by which we communicated to to and through the uh, Afghan uh, representatives that were representing the overall Afghan government, and so they were they they played a really key and integral part in everything in our everyday lives. Like for instance, um, one of my uh, interpreters was a um, you know they all had different functions. You know, one of my interpreters was my foreman. And he spoke very good English, you know, fluent English. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say like fluent in the sense that he understood 
all the axioms of American um, language, but he understood enough to convey what what our intent was being there. And so with that being said, you know, he he was he I put him in charge of, you know, hiring locals to come on base and after which we would uh, then vet and those workers would, you know, wash our laundry, cook our food, help with the repairs and maintenance on our vehicles. Um, we had a number of Russian uh, weapons that we acquired during that time period. And so we had uh, Afghan um, uh, gunsmiths that understood Russian weapons and they can get them functioning. And so we had a number of um, different um, things that we actually had them to do. But outside of that, we had, you know, outside of that one foreman, we had other interpreters that went out on missions with us. They carried guns, they wore body armor, they fought alongside us because, and they also helped rally the Afghan border police or the Afghan um, National Army, the ANA, or other entities that were helping us establish security in the area um, when we got into firefights, you know, they were able to, we would communicate to them, Hey, um, we're going to flank, you know, we're going to maneuver on, on these, uh, on the Taliban that are fighting us or, you know, at the time the, the Haqqani or Hig, whatever the, the anti Afghan, um, Afghan uh, militias that were, you know, out there to disrupt our operate, you know, Afghan pro Afghan government operations. And so with that came a lot of confidence that we built with them. Also came a lot of conf with that came a lot of confidence in this, in the people that we were training because these Afghan interpreters were there for every bit of the training that we uh, uh, put the Afghan soldiers, police, whoever we were working with through. So they understood not only were they getting trained, but with, they were also conveying what our instructions were to the Afghans that were working um, alongside us so that we can actually do um so that we can actually do our job while we were there. And it, it was a really nice relationship. And with that became, you know, not just a relationship of like, they, they were no longer acquaintances. They were brothers in battle. They were guys that we can entrust with uh, a task to go out and do. And without us being there and, know exactly what our intent was so that whatever we tasked them with was actually accomplished. So, you know, we, so that with that, you, you develop a really intimate relationship with these guys. And over the years, 2006, 2007, um, my first, you know, my first two deployments in Afghanistan were in the same area. So I just didn't, you know, go there in two. 2006 go back home re to only redeploy somewhere else no i came back to the same fire base knew the same people knew the same villagers 
and we had and they knew my face they didn't even gave me a name you know they call me uh black mountain because i'm just uh you know i'm black and i'm a big dude and so mm-hmm. that's that was the name that they they uh they gave me and when i rolled through the vi- any of the villages on our in our area you know it was you know the chief of police were you know uh, ask hey tor how's your family doing tora how's your family doing you know you know hey black and I didn't take any offense to it because it was a term in endearment and, 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 um, and, and, and it was kind of, you know, those guys who gave me that name, you know, they had gone through firefights with me. So they knew who I was. They knew I had kids. They didn't know how many, but they knew I had kids. They knew I had, I was married. They know I've been married for quite, a, you know, for quite some time. Um, we didn't divulge a lot of our information, but what information they knew from what they heard in conversations and whatever, our rumors is what we kind of ran with. And so when it came time with, uh, when it came time to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, a lot of these guys called out to us and not, not just those, the guys in 2000 that I worked with in 2006 and 2007, but, you know, 2008, you know, 2009, 2010, I, you know, I have about five or six interpreters that reached out to me and it's like, hey, we need help with our our, our uh, visas, our paperwork uh, to get to the States or get elsewhere. And, you know, and so since the drawdown, I've been quite busy on the doing some of the administrative duties, not so much. I haven't had any success doing any of the uh, trying to, you know, being able to get them through uh, the whole process and get them on planes. But I have been able to help them out with the administrative portions of getting them, um, getting their paperwork squared away so that um, so that when a time comes, they get the phone call or the email, whatever, however they're. Um, being contacted, they can report to the appropriate place to uh, be extracted out of, out of Afghanistan. So in some sense, these guys are, they're not, I mean, maybe they're not quite fully teammates, but they're pretty close. And cause obviously here you are in, in the States, you've got, and I, you know, obviously we know each other personally. And so I know you've got a lot of things going on in your personal life and I, I'm not saying like a bunch of bad things, but you've got things, you've got a lot going on. You're, you're a guy and a dad and all this, you got a lot going on and you're volunteering time to try to get these guys out. I mean, that's a lot more than, uh, you know, some other, some other people would be willing to do. And I would think that that is probably because there's a real relationship there, you know, right. an actual relationship. Yeah. You know, you know, like I said, these guys, when we were in Afghanistan, anything we needed, like say for instance, we anything from clothing to uh, gifts for a family, or you know, it, it went more than just hey, I'm I'm deployed and you're just a guy I'm working with. It was you know, I actually knew the names of their kids. Um, I actually you know, when uh, a teammate of mine died, the in 2008, the locals went out of their way to make sure that the family received gifts from the people of the village and solidarity. You know, there's a lot of solidarity. So I, 
you know, I would treat, they were like teammates. They were teammates. You, you know, there was the interpreters themselves. Now the Afghan uh, police, the border patrol, the Afghan army guys. Uh, and in some cases, some rarely rare cases. Um, and most of the commandos that we worked with, um, we didn't have that type of relationship. It was a, Hey, I'm here to train you. I'm here to go out and fight with you. And that's it, you know, and because we weren't at the end of the day, once that mission was done, they were going home to their family. I was returning to the fire base and the, and the interpreters were the guys that we sat down in the chow hall and ate dinner with. They're the ones who, um, when they would go out, they would bring back gifts to us, or we would bring gifts from the United States. Hey, you know, Hey Hoff, can you bring me back some jeans or, um, can you bring me something that's kind of unique to where you live in the United States? And, you know, we, my wife and I, we would put together little packages to send out to those guys so that they had them. And, um, not only did we have the local interpreters, but we also had us, uh, um, Afghan interpreters, guys who were actually citizens of the United States of America, who were serving there in Afghanistan as interpreters at either whether they were, um, which really cleared up a lot of confusion. So, like you know, in American jargon, we say things like, especially in America, uh, in the military, we were very crude. Like we would say, uh, "Hey, this guy is a good." this guy's a good mother effort, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, to us, that's a compliment. That's one of the highest compliments. You, you know that, right? <laughs> but to them at, in the beginning, I remember saying it to a new, to a new uh, worker. Cause I really liked him. I'm like, Hey, this guy's a good, uh, real good mother effort. And he understood that he didn't understand English, but he understood what I said. You know, and he didn't, he took offense to it. And so interpreters, <laughs> interpreters was there like, hey, bro, you know, you know, to for the U.S. military, for them to say that it's a high compliment. It's not something to that they would say to uh, to insult you and and don't. It's just something to say. It's not, it has no meaning. And so at the end of the day. I, I I learned I learned something and as well as I hopefully the the uh, worker learned something that you know we some of the things we say we really don't mean but we say it's meant to be something that's held in hard regard and there's very few instances in uh, in our relationship with the Afghans where where one of the guys on my team was someone I I've worked with. Uh, said something that was very you know that they didn't understand to be that they understood not to be offensive now some guys and I think this I, I'm not trying to justify green on blue where an Afghan you know where Afghan that's uh, friendly to U.S. forces turns on an American but I think in some of those cases uh, I think most cases those people who turn when you have a green on blue instance they have been compromised but i think there's a there's a couple cases of friends of mine were who fell victim to green on blue who might have said a few things that they didn't have the relationship built with the with the local national 
and they took offense and felt like it was necessary to escalate their honor by, you know, making it a more catastrophic event. That's interesting. I've never, I've never heard that perspective, but I can see, I can totally see how that could happen. Oh yeah. I, I know one guy in particular who was very, a very aggressive guy and he was aggressive in his speech, but he wasn't necessarily aggressive in his manner. And so I know that he might've said something that <laughs> I'm not saying, and like, again, I'm not trying to justify a green on blue in any, in any circumstance, I hear what you're saying. but if, uh, if I had to go back in time and if I wasn't there, you know, in any of these events that happened, I was never there, but I can imagine just because of the temperament of the guy, um, what what might have happened and how that might have went down because of that if the if only if the afghan had not been compromised sure so <clears throat> how would you say your because i from the what i got from this was uh well i mean i got a lot of things but when you went into Afghanistan, you were looking for bin Laden and all that, especially as an SF guy, you're an 18 Bravo guy. I mean, you're, you're a hard charging dude going to Afghanistan. You're looking for bin Laden. You, you know, the mission seems pretty clear. And then eventually it becomes obvious that maybe that's not really what the mission is. And now you got a new mission. That's a different discussion, but now you have a new mission and you're, you're making friends with locals and you're doing your best and all this. And it, obviously you guys were actually making friends because, uh, you know, you referenced, I, I assume Sergeant first class Miller getting killed and, you know, the, um, uh, the gifts that were, you know, uh, that these people went out and got gifts for this guy who had sacrificed heroically. Y'all did every one of you did as far as I'm concerned um, in that, you know, in that firefight and exchange and stuff. So you went in looking for bin Laden. Then you started trying to take care of people because that's just the kind of guy you are. But now when you look back at it, uh, has your, which, how much of your, how much of this looks different in retrospect? Like, has your opinion on Afghanistan changed? Um, or, or excuse me, obviously not your opinion on Afghanistan. How much is your opinion on what we did or what you guys did in Afghanistan changed? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a very, very, man, we can go down some lot, a lot of rabbit holes, but um, just in that question alone, because I understand where you're coming from. So we went there, our initial, my first, my first couple tours there, I was nowhere at we had no clue we weren't getting fed any information as to where bin laden was so in retrospect we weren't we weren't technically working you know uh we weren't technically looking for osama bin laden per se however if something came up on our radar you know and it was very likely because where i where i served at in the kunar province we're right there on the afghan pakistan border so it the likelihood of us getting any information on 
uh, Osama bin Laden or UBL was there was a likely chance of that actually happening. Um, there were rumors, like for instance, we you know there were rumors as to um, little uh, houses because there were you know in Afghanistan people live in pro- pro- poverty and every kalat or compound um, we call them um, the Afghans call them kalats. We call them compounds, but um, the, every kalat didn't. So is it? Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Is a kalat like a tiny village or something? Is that no a kalat? Is like a is their compound? They're okay. uh, so each so, so just for yes. Yeah, so for the sake of description, um, let me describe. So you have a village. A village is going to be made up of many kalats, and um, and the kalat will consist of four walls, and within that wall within those four walls will be a courtyard and attached to the wall to at least three of the walls um, at the very minimum will be uh, a structure where, you know, the, the, the members of the household will sleep, eat, cook and store livestock. And so that, that, so it's just like our, it's like our own little house with a fence around it. But in, in the case of a clot, they have these uh, about a half meter thick wall that goes as high as, I don't know, um, 10, 15 feet. And with er- anything that happens within that wall, those, wall, those walls you can't, you know, you can't see from ground level. And um, there, there's usually one or two entry points, um, which is like either a gate for a vehicle to go in and out of and and that with within that gate itself will be a built-in door so the gate serves two purposes uh to let in larger vehicles or the gate will serve it serve a purpose of letting one individual in and from that they can uh secure it from the inside so these walls are usually thick and um the the clot is usually surrounded by farmland and, and in some cases what will happen these clots will be a part of a bigger family so that that one clot may have uh you know two to three families but then you know a son will get married and his wife will move in and over a period of time they will attach an extension to that clot and make that so that one clot will become two but it'll still be called one collot if that makes any sense it does yeah it does and and then so um within the village itself you'll have number you know it depending on the uh the blend of the family you it they can be very big and they can be very small in most cases they're fairly you know they're about the same size as a family as a a lot in a major city like uh like for instance, I live in Orlando and, you know, probably less, definitely less than an acre um, that the structure itself will be on, but um, the, their total property may be a couple acres, two to three, four acres, you know, you never know. Um, and then the Afghans themselves have developed a system of, you know, that that's another thing where the Afghans themselves will develop a, a, uh, 
a uh, markers as to which, you know, like, you know, you live out in the country. So, you know, farmers know what their property is and mm-hmm. they're, they're no different than anybody else. They, they, sure. they know their property better than anybody else. So um, that's the kind of like the family structure like going along the lines of uh, the families. Uh, so within that, the people are very get you know like they're you know most people there are very hey I just want to live my life uh, I I want to have as many you know as many wives as Sharia law allows uh, I want <laughs> I want to I want doesn't uh, want that <laughs> yeah I mean this like I would say ninety percent ninety five percent of the population in Afghanistan just want to just be left alone you know mm. like anywhere else. Sure. Um, but they do want structure and they recognize structure when they see it and they will go along with whatever structure power structure is 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 uh is available and they will do that in as long as everybody's in agreement to how that structure is ran and so um i I would say that the average Afghan really has no loyalties to any government entity other than what's uh, describing Islamic law. I could be wrong on that, but that's just what I saw in perception. And, but the overall, their reception of us, I've never seen a lot of, I, I never really witnessed like open hostility towards Americans. Um, outside of getting shot at by those who are against the uh, government, obviously, you know, but for the most part, it was um, the people there were just, Hey, I just want to live my life. I want to feed my family. I want to grow my crops. Leave me alone on Friday. I want to go to the mosque Um, in, in any opportunity to earn money. They're going to take that opportunity. And within the, 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 the structure, you know, just for my perception within this cultural construct, you know, the local leaders had to show strength. And so we, we can sit in a Ashura, which is a meeting um, with the local elders and we can come to an agreement as to how things are going to be, how things are going to, um, go henceforth but when they walk out of that building and they address their people they're gonna they're gonna show some they're gonna show their authority and and sh- you know and tell the people that they demanded so many things from the americans and the americans acquiesced to their demands so that they maintain the um the confidence of the afghan people and so we had to allow that to happen on a lot of levels. You know, we had to, you know, and it was explained like, you know, a lot of the leaders, the provincial governors were people who actually were living in America, went back, who went back to the, uh, to Afghanistan to run a, to run a province, you know, as a governor. And they understood how Americans, they understood the uh, American attitudes. They understood American um, 
um, the way we do things. But at the same time, they also understood um, their own people. So going back to what I said before, you know, they would be very cordial and very, uh, you know, in, and very, and it will demand things. And when I say demand, you know, it was like, like hey, it wasn't like, hey, I, we will have this and you will give that. No, they would just ask. When I say demand, they would ask of the request. But when they went out to the people, it was very different. You know, they were, hey, you know, and we knew this. I didn't know this at first. And I was like, you know, WTF, you know, why, why is this guy shit, you know, why are we eating with this guy drinking tea? and laughing and and in the moment that's all done he goes out the door and he's given the middle finger the afghan equivalent to the of the middle finger to the americans and all it was was a game um um some gamesmanship so that if any taliban were actually there intermixed intermixed within the uh, village they would report back that you know, whatever they will report to, you know, the Taliban leadership of what's going on in our area. I don't even know if I answered your question. Dude. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. It's, uh, that was actually better than a direct answer to the question because so much of us don't, including myself, don't know a lot about the Afghan culture. And um, every once in a while, I see similarities to Iraq and what you're talking about. And then, you know, some of it is like very different. It's pretty obvious that you know yeah they're they're very interesting people you know like i said they will whoever has the most power that is the people that you know i'm not i'm not to say that you know they'll turn their turncoats or anything like that it's just you know they're they're very good at reading the environment the the shifts the wind you know how the how the environment shifts and um the the leaders that are in place know how to communicate the thoughts and attitudes of the locals to um in, with regards to how they interact with us yeah it's funny in in this way it sounds a lot more like the the native american especially in the west it sounds a lot more like the way things went between the dragoons and then later the u.s army and this kind of stuff um out here on the you know, the, the high plains in that area it sounds, it actually, there's sounds like a lot of similarities and at least in the way that, uh, sort of that, um, uh, uh, those contacts went, you know, each yeah. time. you know, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because when we go through our training, the Robin Sage scenario is, uh, it's a total unconventional war scenario, but a lot of it has to do with the uh, politics of interacting with uh, the key leaders that um, as the government starts to change, the U.S. forces have to engage with the local, um, the local, the new local leadership. Right. And as that to establish governance. And so what we call is like putting an Afghan face or putting a local national face on um a new policy and the the whole point of it is really not to for us to say hey this is what the u.s wants um we're more or less facilitators in the robin sage uh scenario that we go through the uh in a special forces qualification course 
really hammers a lot on that uh, um, within uh, built-in scenarios. And I saw that a lot as, a, as an ROTC instructor. Um, I led a lane with uh, my lane, the lane, a training lane I, I, I led was a uh, key leader engagement. And that's where, you know, army leadership, mostly, you know, mainly an officer uh, engages with the local populace, um, exp- you know, with the intent of the Afghan government and the U.S. in conjunction with the U.S. government's intent. And they engage the local um, popular, the local leaders in, um, in helping the local leaders facilitate governance in a remote region. And it's really hard because um, you have centers of gravities, like a center of gravity would be a big city, right? Like uh, Kabul will be considered a center of gravity because it's a big city. People will gravitate to there for commerce, will uh, gravitate to Kabul for news, um, what have you. Um, 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 Mazari-e-Sharif, uh, up north is another hub. Herat is another center of gravity. Uh, Kandahar, another center of gravity. Um, uh, and then you have smaller centers of gravity around that uh, naturally develop around fire bases or fobs, where you have a large population of you know local nationals who live in a certain area start to gra- you know start to move into the area because there's jobs available. Um, provided by the uh, coalition forces. So with these, all these little centers of gravity, you have an opportunity to engage the populace in bigger masses. So what the biggest challenge in Afghanistan was the smaller, these small villages that were so far removed, um, they weren't, they didn't have access to a, um, a main supply route. Uh, we Americans will call it a main supply route to the civilian world. It would be just a road, a major road, whether it be improved like a freeway, or, like a freeway. Yeah. And, um, th- you know, those are means of communication and um, delivering of goods and services. And so um, these, so if you have a village that's three to four K we engaged, like we went to villages in Afghanistan, like, where I, I was the first person, first non-Afghan, they would see and ask whether or not if I'm Russian. Because mm. they had no clue. I hear and that I, a lot. Yeah, you know, like, and here I am, a big black dude. Do I look <laughs> like a Russian, you know? It's, so, do you look like I fought Rocky <laughs> in, in that movie? Do I look like that guy to you? I'm from Rocky 1. <laughs> I lost to, uh, yeah, I lost I'm, to the Russian, yeah. But yeah, 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 you yeah. Know. I'm the guy that beat his ass in the first one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, you know, I, we walked into a village. There's one village uh, that was like five or six kilometers off the main road in Kunar. Mm. And the only people that left the village were the elders to go get foods and supplies mm. for the, the village. And because the village was self self-sustained you know they had water they, they had plenty of food you know they had a local market five or six kilometers away and there was no there was no sense and it was like maybe five or six families 
So when my big black butt walk up into their village, you know, and there's, there's no one around, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And then, you know, I see one local and, and you know, I have a Turk next to me and they're like, Hey, are, are, are these the Russians? And we're like, no, these are Americans. And then they, then they all come out, you know, they come out of the woodworks. Wow. Um, and it, in the terrain really restricts some of those villages from actually getting communication, whether it be, you know, cause we don't, we think of communication as, you know, verbal in this sense, I'm talking all senses of the, uh, of forms of communication. You have news radio, you have, um, well, you, so you have the media, um, word of mouth, which is the most common in some of these places you have, uh, ICOM, radios which are handheld um ham radios essentially in the in the united states they would be considered ham radios kind of souped up walkie-talkie for someone yes. who's not in yeah. you know yeah. the- uh, and that's their that's in fact you know before cell phones became a big thing before cell service became a big thing in afghanistan that's how the everybody communicated was through icom wow and, and you know, they had coded messages. You had uh, another form of uh, uh, communication was flashlight at night. You know, when um, they didn't want to communicate over the radio, they would, you know, across the valley, they would, you know, have their form of Morse code that they will uh, signal one another, you know, across the valley to, to talk. Um, you had, uh, I said word of mouth, newspapers weren't a big thing. Um, so, a lot of times the news that any type of communication that the village receive any type of information from out from the outside world, the, the that a particular village that's far removed would receive would be received through word of mouth or over the icon. And wow. so it, 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 so those are some of the challenges that not only that we face, but also the Afghan government. Uh, faced for these smaller villages outside of these larger uh, um, cities because in these larger cities everybody knew what was going on um the lines of communication were plenty whether that be news school is another line of communication out to the outside world sure. uh, doctors guys who um they had guys who ventured each province had two two to four or two to eight guys that would venture throughout the province, uh, giving vaccines out. And with that came news of what's going on elsewhere throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Um, family members was another, you know, uh, another means of communication. Um, you know, you may, a daughter may be get, may be married off to, um, to another family who then relocates to another area and then she comes back to visit her family and whatever news she brings with her is also a form of communication so it's very it's it's very simple but also rather complicated in the world that we live in with uh you know smartphones and television that we take for granted yeah i mean it's not fair when people say you know bronze age and this kind of stuff but you know, when they compare Afghanistan to that, that era, but, you know, I, I understand where that's coming from uh, or stone age. Even you hear that one. Yeah. I understand where that's coming from, but it really, 
honestly, you know, as a layperson who never went to Afghanistan, a lot of this sounds so familiar. You know, obviously, I read a lot about the uh, the the old West and in, in the American sense. You know, out here uh, where I'm from, I read a lot about that history, and this sounds so much. It sounds so similar to what was happening with the first patrols that were coming out here. It sounds so similar. Yeah, you know, like uh, that movie Dances with Wolves. I don't know how you feel about that. But... <laughs> you don't want to know how I feel about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, nah. but, you know, I, I watched that uh, about six months ago, and it reminded me a lot of being in Afghanistan, you know. And it, wow. it, it was very, in, in a lot of cases, it was very similar, except for, you know, meeting a a squaw that was a <laughs> kidnapped squaw you know <laughs> yeah you never got yourself a squaw out of the deal did you get you one of those porcupine quill vests or anything cool like that no, actually i have a couple of outfits that uh that were gifted to me during um the time of eat so they're eat like we have christmas every uh december 25th um they're they, so they have a small eat and a big eat and I'm not I'm not really dialed in as to the meaning of either, but the biggie um, is my first tour in Afghanistan fell on Christmas, fell in the Christmas time frame, and so um, naturally when I returned the following year, I thought, oh shoot, they celebrated it. So I'm going to bring them some gifts. So I brought them some dates and some things that, you know, I found out that they really liked. And so I brought a bunch of stuff from, from the States and um, come to find out it had uh, the, the, the time frame changed. So it was, it didn't fall on Christmas. So it's like Ramadan, it's landing at different Ramadan. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was Ramadan. It's the same thing. Oh, okay. They call it Eid, and it's the same thing, the exact same thing. They they take all their guidance from Saudi Arabia. So whenever Saudi Arabia says, hey, this is when we're celebrating it, that's when the rest of the Islamic world celebrates it, um, from what I gathered from the Afghans anyway. Um, but, yeah, it was a it was a pretty big deal. And, and just the simple things like, simple things like that was a, made a huge impact on our relationships with, with uh, the locals and um, especially the, uh, um, the people that the interpreters, because, you know, they, they saw that we took an active interest and that wasn't something that most army units do because, you know, you know how it is, man, you, you, you're in a unit, you, you find out a year or two that you're going to deploy. And so that's all, you know, you're, you're all your focus is on deploying, but you don't really focus on, and correct me if I'm wrong, you don't focus on how you're deploying, you know, and what aspects that you have to really key on um, when you deploy, what, what some aspects that you may experience. Cause we had a lot of units who the year prior were in Af- in Iraq and now they're in Afghanistan and they're trying to fight, fight a war that they fought in Iraq the same way in Afghanistan. And it doesn't work. You know, the people right. are totally different. Sure. So, um, so there's that aspect. Um, a couple other aspects is the, uh, I don't know what it was like for you in Iraq, but 
at least in Afghanistan, if they knew, if the Afghans knew they can get something from you, <laughs> that's all. That's that. <laughs> well, well, these dudes were trying to sell me smoked carp and shit. <laughs> yeah, man. If they could get something from you, they would try to get it for sure. Yeah, but, man. yeah. They would. They'd like try to wheeze you out of stuff, but like, oh, here's a good, like, a good example. Like when, so I did, like, in 2002 to 2003, 2004ish, in Afghanistan, you can go and buy a huge carpet, a huge rug. And have a shimp sit like for a hundred bucks. Whoa. Like nice Persian rugs, you know? Whoa. So by the time I left Afghanistan, uh, what's that? Uh, the transportation secretary, Boot, Bootag? <laughs> Bootajag. Uh, Buttjag, I think, is yeah, what whatever. That guy, so he sat in the carpet shop outside of my fob at Bagram in 2013-14. He sat outside in this in every day he was trying to talk the carpet uh the guy who sewed the rugs uh down. Uh, I think no he ended way. Up paying, dude, he I think <laughs> he ended up paying a couple grand for like 90 square like a like 100 square feet of carpet. Oh my gosh. Like a cut, like he paid more money than I would ever pay for a carpet, and he thought he was getting a good deal. <laughs> that's why, and that's a, that's why he's a transportation secretary. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I, I would go into the, I would go into the, into the, anytime I went into the market because they were attached to our fob, uh, I would see him in there. I was like, and the, and the guy who owned the shop, he was just like, dude, I can't. I'm not going down in price. Like I've already gone down enough for this guy. I'm not going down any because the Afghans figured out really fast that these guys. Because I had teammates before um, before I joined the team who bought thousands of dollars worth of like not just one carpet, you know, one rug. They bought five, six, seven of these huge carpets or rugs, and ended up coming back selling them for two three grand piece oh my gosh and this is like 2002 2003 to 2005 and it's by the time i got there it, they were going like a hundred square foot rug which is pretty big yeah a car would go for close to nine hundred dollars wow so i i never bought anything from those guys you know if i got anything at all if I got anything at all, it was either gifted to me and I made sure that I gave them something in return for it. It's very you know, cool, man. So, uh, you know, I, I got a few trinkets, but nothing too extravagant. You know, it just, at most I got um, a lot of, like all I wanted was clothes and the little hats that they wore. And um, that's about it. And, a, you know, just a few things for my daughters, but I never like, and in return, I would always, if when I came back or when I left, I would ship out, you know, some stuff from these states, candy, clothes, whatever they had asked for. A lot of times it was cologne. Really? So I just, yeah. I would go to the dollar store and buy like $40 worth of cologne and ship it out to them. That's very cool, man. Yeah. That's so. very cool. 
Well, we're getting a little bit short of time, but I got uh, a good uh, mutual friend of ours, Lafayette Lee. He asked me, he wants to know how you feel like your faith impacted dealing with everything with, you know, with all throughout all of this, how did, how did your faith serve to help you cope? I guess is the right word. All right. So I was a, so I'm LDS. I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. And um, I served a two year mission. And I, I mentioned, the, I mentioned the reason why I mentioned that because of the faith thing, but I mentioned the mission because on my mission is where, you know, at 19 years old, um, I learned this selfless service, uh, which happens to be one of the uh, army values. Um, selfless service was something that I really wanted to, um, I didn't, I like at the end of the day, I didn't join the army to kill people. I knew it was part of the job. Like, I don't think a cop joins the, you know, wants to be a cop to kill people. You know, he wanted to serve their community. So I wanted to serve my country, but I didn't, I didn't, I, my approach of it wasn't, um, my approach wasn't, Hey, I'm joining the army just to kill people. I really wanted to serve. Um, and I understood that there would be a time where that will happen. And, um, and unfortunately it did. And, um, and it's not something I, I try to brag or boast about, but, you know, there's something that I, I have to live with, but, um, my faith really impacted the way I approached how I dealt with the Afghans that I worked with, because it was that pure love of, of Christ, that pure love of God that really, like, I didn't, I, you know, I, I took what they said at face value and I used the, uh, the gift of the sermon, being able to uh, uh, discern what's going on. And I try to, you know, and so I try to really be as giving as I can to the people. Um, I smiled a lot, you know, I joked around a lot with uh with locals you know when it was appropriate um i took them seriously when they you know presented an issue but i didn't at any point go there with the with an attitude of um of hey i'm better than you you know, I wanted to learn as much. I wanted to learn as much as about their culture as possible. Be, you know, I kind of want, I almost wanted to like go native in, you know, in the sense of I wanted to be that guy that understood their culture enough that when a problem presented itself, I understood what was going on. And because I served there for so many years, as time went on, I was able to do that in, the, in greater capacities every time, you know? And so I knew I had a better understanding of where these guys would hide to fight us, you know, but at the same time, you know, when we would do a uh, med cap, when we would go out to a village and provide medical assistance to the local doctors and physicians, we would, uh, I would make sure I was part of, the caregiving, even though it wasn't part of my job, 
uh, on a team, um, whether it be uh, triaging uh, patients as they came in to the clinics or whether it be handing out something as simple as uh, handing out uh, humanitarian assistance. You know, I gave out a lot of humanitarian assistance, not just to the to my workers, but every payday. Um, one of one of the my responsibilities as a, a special forces engineer was I was in charge of all the workers. So I paid the workers, um, and I gave them. I tasked them out with duties around the firebase. But every payday, which was once a month, and then depending on the worker, I would give them, you know, at least 300 pounds of food, whether it be rice, beans. Um, I gave out a lot of feminine hygiene products because that was something that was, was drastically new. Um, tampons and maxi pads were a huge deal. And I had a Connex full of them. And these guys, the, the husbands will be like very discreet and be like, hey, Hav, can you hide this? Can you hide this stuff in the rice and the beans? <laughs> you know? uh, uh, <laughs> I'm like, not all that different than us, honestly. <laughs> y'all, yeah. I, I remember, you know, first, the first week of marriage, my wife say, hey, go to the store and grab this for me. I'm like, what the heck? You know, I didn't know what to get. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was a huge deal, and uh, I would give them you know whatever they needed, uh, clothing, uh, especially for the kids, school supplies, um, and one of the big things was uh, we myself and another guy on, t- on my team, he's a he's a Christian, um, like myself. He uh, he spent a lot of time. He this guy was awesome. He spent a lot of time teaching. We had orphans. We hired. I think it was five orphans and one of the orphans I'm actually helping getting his uh, SIV paperwork. And that's what I spent the afternoon doing um, when we were texting back and forth. Uh, but we actually helped them learn English. And um, oh. let me, let me, let me, read, cool, man. let me read you an email he sent me. Yeah. Just, just, to put a a human element on this on this conversation his i'm not going to say his name but he uh he sent me a uh, he sent me a email earlier today and he says dear respected sir i have re- applied for uh, siv as per your recommended letter and forward all documents with the letter to the civ center respected sir if you got any query regarding me from SIV, I need your strong recommendation because we are a great danger here. God. I'm reading this word for word. He says, please fill this form, my friend, and recommend me for P2 program too. Look at your kind response. Looking at your kind response, fill this form and submit it to me. I am going to apply for instructions for U.S.-based media organization NGOs to submit referrals. So this kid couldn't speak. He could barely speak English. Wow. And this is an email he drafted. Yeah. Um, uh, if you got, we've still got time. There's something else. Just to, just to yeah. um, kind of give you a, an idea. I mean, this dude writes better than most kids who graduate high school here. Yeah. And this kid was, 
he's he's an orphan and an orphan in the sense that he his dad was killed by the Taliban uh, before we uh, uh, invaded back in the day. Mm. Um, my my foreman that I was ta- telling you about, he um, uh, we've been texting back and forth through a uh, through one of the chats that we use. And, um, dude, like this during, this is during a time when, uh, uh, the crowds were, were, uh, the people were crowding the, uh, the airport and, and, um, you know, just, he, he was saying things like, Hey, my life is in danger. I'm trying to get him to leave where he's at to go to Kabul. And he's so afraid. He's like definitely afraid to even leave his house. Um, after my 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 uh, my team left the area, uh, we picked no other special forces team was going back. His life was in, he said his life was in danger, and so he moved to another city. And there he opened up a pharma a pharmacy uh, a pharmaceutical shop, and that's what he's been working ever since we left. And um, he's he when the uh, biometrics system got was compromised Mm -hmm. he like he 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 called i talked to him on the phone he was crying he was like dude my name i know my i know i gave you my you know you took my fingerprints you have my name you have all this information on me and now the taliban has it and my life's in danger and i I had to talk him off the ledge you know i was like hey bro i need you to act normal if you bring any attention to yourself you're gonna just you're going to draw the wrong attention to yourself and bad things will happen. I need you to open your shop. And cause I was working with another, with an American who's um, a retired officer who's living in, who's living in Afghanistan, who has a family there. Um, uh, SF dude. And uh, I put him in contact and I was like, Hey, you need to contact this guy. He will get you, you know, he'll start making arrangements to get you to Kabul and, but that all fell through, you know, with the bombing and everything that just shut everything down. And so this guy is just totally scared. He's locked down. He's been hiding in the shop. And it's just, it's, it's, it's such an emotional thing. So I've, I've been, uh, I've been kind of, I kind of, you know, this is something I've been kind of keeping quiet um, amongst our group of guys that we communicate with, but it's it's been really hard on me because here I am hearing it in real time, you know, as yeah. things, you know, I'm feeding him information. Hey, this is what I just found out. And as I was finding out things, I was sharing it with you guys and those same things I was sharing with him. And, and, you know, it just made things worse, you know? <laughs> and, so, and, and so at one point I was like, Hey, you need to get up North. You need to get out of the country. He's like, I can't, you know, the moment I leave my house, someone's going to die me out. And next thing you know, I might be dead. And I'm like, so so the only thing that's he's surviving on is his kids going out his his nieces and nephews going out to the market to buy food to bring back home and uh fortunately he's made he 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 was well paid and he was a businessman before everything went down so i you know he's he's got some funding that will last him quite a bit if you know but 
you know, as those families kind of pull their resources together, which makes uh, things makes life easier for them um, as a family unit. So, um, so yeah, that's where that, you know, my faith has um, really pointed me in the direction of helping these people without, and you know, without uh, questioning it, but the, you know, one of the things my faith has also taught, you know, taught me is to look ahead. And so now I'm thinking once these guys do come to the States, they're going to need help and they're going to probably call me to get help. Mm -hmm. Am I in a situation to be able to help them out? And so there's going to, you know, that's a discussion I'm going to have to have with my wife because I think we're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to sacrifice something to get, you know, so that they can enjoy the freedoms that we only try to bring to their country. So, um, well, let us know how we can help with that. Cause I want, I want to help with that for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, man, that's heavy. Uh, we're, I, I don't want to leave on that. Yeah. Tell me, I've been doing this new thing. I tried it with Julio the other day, but before we go, because we're out of time but before we go tell me what your favorite part of being an american is man the the favorite part my favorite part of being an american and it it hasn't occurred to me until maybe 10 years ago is that i can be myself and not really care no it actually happened 20 years ago no i take that back it happened in high school I was the only black kid that liked Nirvana, that liked them, <laughs> that like and didn't care and just didn't care because, you know, at that time you had to choose. You had to choose what type of music you liked, and it was expected that you went one way. And because I grew up in a musical background, um, playing in high school band and having you know um, family members who 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 were musicians i like I, I was open i listened to the beatles i listened to rolling stones i listened to rap hip-hop you named it i didn't care i listened to garth brooks i you know if you if you got a ride with me in my in my car in high school that you know you got friends in high places was playing on my radio and i didn't care because it was good music. You know? So the, the part about being an American that I love the most is, you know, I learned at an early age from my, from my stepdad that being an American is being an American and it encompasses everything, not just one aspect. I love that brother. Thank you for coming on. We're going to have to do this again for sure. When it's Dude, let's do it. Definitely. Less heavy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk, I want to talk about Idaho. <laughs> hey, we don't talk about Idaho on this podcast. Oh, we, right. we talk about Colorado. <laughs> all right. Yeah, we, that's, that's where we want, want everybody to go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks, brother. I'm going to hit you up. Well, I'm going to talk to you after this, but uh, uh, we're going to do this again for sure. All right, man. Yeah, thanks, bro. I want to thank Cobb for coming on. He's a great guy. Go follow him on Twitter at Looking Over. His handle is like Looking Over Strange Terrain or something, but the at itself is Looking Over. Go check him out. He's a great guy. Super humble. Humble almost to a fault. I mean, the guy's an incredible warrior. In fact, he got shot twice in one firefight. I mean, he just has an incredible story. He's a really neat guy, and I can't wait to have him on again. Talk about some other stuff. 
if you are if you like this show please share it we're gonna try to really up the production value i've got a buddy that's gonna help me build an intro and we're just gonna try to level this thing up and we have a few announcements coming up especially on the for those of you who've been following the veteran horse training you know try to get into the horse business thing i've got a veteran coming up in november to start on that so follow us for updates on that stuff uh follow me on twitter at braxton underscore mccoy and i'll talk to you guys next week